1, we'll read through to verse 56, and then we'll skip over to Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 21. First then, reading from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Here we have an encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan village. It gives us a sense of the attitude which Jews and Samaritans had towards one another. We read there in the Word of God, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that is Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Then reading from Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus far, our reading from God's holy word. Let us sing together now, standing from Psalm 87, the stanzas 1 through 3. Beloved, our text for this morning's sermon comes from Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, going to verse 37. Uh, We read there a section known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Beloved, hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your, st- or your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jer- or Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, 
and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thus far, God's holy word. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, are we willing to practice radical love? Are we willing to love God and our neighbors with everything that we have? That is the the question which is before us in our text today. The parable of the Good Samaritan is perhaps the most well-known of all of Jesus' parables. The term Good Samaritan is one which you can still find in popular culture today. Frequently used to describe someone who carries out an act of mercy or kindness for a stranger. And our familiarity with this parable may rob it of some of its impact. Because make no mistake, for those listening to Jesus when he told this parable that first time, this parable would have been a real shocker. For with this parable, Jesus teaches us that there are no limits or restrictions on the love that we must show to God and our neighbor. Beloved, I proclaim God's word as it comes to us in the parable of the Good Samaritan and in its surrounding context using the following theme. Jesus teaches us to hate or to love those we would prefer to hate. Jesus teaches us to love those we would prefer to hate. And he does this first by teaching us to love our God, and second, by teaching us to love our neighbor. Beginning back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke's gospel begins to describe what some have called Jesus' ministry under the shadow of the cross. Here and in the following sections, we see Jesus prepare his disciples for the day when he will no longer be present to instruct them face to face. And included in this section of Luke are a number of events which aren't mentioned in the other Gospels, including the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
We see that Jesus is in the midst of instructing his disciples when a lawyer stands up to put him to the test. Now, this lawyer would have been an expert with regard to Jewish religious law in particular. And here it appears he wishes to see if Jesus' knowledge of the law matches his own. Now, standing up in the presence of a rabbi or a teacher like Jesus was a respectful thing to do. But the lawyer's desire to put Jesus to the test implies that he's not simply asking this question out of a genuine desire to learn. This man honors Jesus by calling him teacher. But he doesn't really wish to become one of Christ's disciples. Now his question is appropriate enough, asking, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has only recently sent out his disciples to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. And we see elsewhere very clearly that eternal life is the great reward given to those who enter the kingdom of God. But now, instead of answering the man directly, Jesus asks him a question in return. What is written in the law? How do you read it? We might say that Jesus is kind of throwing him an easy one. The lawyer would have been well-versed in the law. And it's possible as well that Jesus' question might be understood as, how do you recite it? This would explain why the lawyer answers with a creed. Because he says to Jesus, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer's answer was a typical summary of the law, combines parts of Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, which stresses the need to love God, with Leviticus 19 verse 18, which stresses the need to love one's neighbor. And in response to this summary, Jesus states, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now this is not the typical response of a Jewish rabbi. A standard rabbinical response would be to explore which aspects of the law were truly essential to righteousness. Because it was well understood that carrying out the whole law with perfection was basically an impossible task. But Jesus simply affirms that the man should carry out the whole law perfectly. The lawyer wanted Jesus to give some limited requirements to explain how an ordinary human being could be good enough for eternal life. But our Lord simply states that a person needs to perfectly carry out the requirements of the law without listing any qualifiers or provisions. It's ultimately meant to lead the man to the realization that he can't possibly fulfill all the requirements of the law on his own, in his own life. Jesus' words are meant to teach the man and us that we need to look outside of ourselves to obtain eternal life. 
This lawyer embodies those that Jesus spoke about earlier in Luke 10, verse 21, when he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The the wise and understanding believe that they can provide or solve their problems themselves. But little children know that they need to look for help in accomplishing difficult things. And nothing is more difficult, more impossible for an ordinary human being than living a life of perfect obedience to God's will. Eternal life requires perfect obedience to the law. But we cannot do this ourselves. We must look elsewhere. And so the only way in which we can be righteous before the requirements of the law is to rely upon the person of Jesus Christ. The one who perfectly fulfilled all those requirements. And who graciously imputes or extends that righteousness to all those who put their faith in him. Later on in the New Testament, a a jailer in Philippi would ask a very similar question to that of the lawyer. He asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And there Paul and Silas responded directly with the words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We must believe in the Lord Jesus because it is only by placing our faith and trust in him that we can receive cleansing from sin and share in his perfect righteousness. It is only in the Lord Jesus Christ that someone can claim that they have loved God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. This brings us to our second point. The lawyer in our text has not seen this discussion go the way that he most likely imagined. So desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The expected answer at that time would be that his neighbors are his family, friends, and close associates. And we can presume that the lawyer had probably done a good job loving these people. He could likely affirm as much to Jesus The lawyer was likely hoping to assert that he had been faithful to the law in loving these people. And so earn the admiration of the crowd around Jesus at that time. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach the man a lesson. Once again, he doesn't directly answer the man's question. This time, he starts to tell a parable. Now, with that in mind, we shouldn't assume that the following events are historical. They're designed to teach the lawyer and the people around Jesus an important lesson. Jesus begins to set the scene, saying that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And it's something which people in that time could easily imagine happening to them. 
This particular route from Jerusalem to Jericho had been plagued with bandits and robbers throughout much of history. The surrounding area was particularly hilly and it provided bandits with plenty of places to set up ambushes. Places where they could camp out when they had to retreat from the local authorities. So a man being robbed along this route was nothing new. Now Jesus never identifies the ethnicity of the man going down. But naturally everyone in the Jewish crowd around Jesus would probably think of him as a Jew. Someone like them. It would be easy to imagine being attacked and beaten in a similar manner. Now we ought to take special note of the condition in which the robbers leave this poor man. Being stripped of his clothes meant that other people couldn't identify his origins. You see, in ancient Palestine, most people wore clothes that were specific to their ethnic group. You could sometimes even identify which city a person came from based on the way that they were dressed. So normally you could easily tell whether someone was a Jew, a Samaritan, or a member of some other tribe just by looking at their clothes. Being stripped, this man was rendered anonymous. The fact that the man was left half dead implies that he was on the very doorstep of death we can safely assume that he is either unconscious or at least unable to speak. And this further complicates the issue of identifying who he was. And more importantly, what nationality or group he belonged to. The robbers, in other words, have turned this man into an anonymous human being. Someone who doesn't clearly belong to any ethnic or religious community. Now Jesus continues, By chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the the priests and the priesthood at this time had been elevated to a, a prestigious or elite part of Jewish society. This priest, in other words, would have been someone who would have had the, the money and resources to help out. People listening would assume that such a man would have been riding on a horse or a donkey. No high-status individual like a priest would make this trip on foot. So why does the priest pass by on the other side, and why does he not bother to help? Some scholars note that as a priest, he might have been concerned about his state of ritual purity. If he made contact with a corpse... He would be considered ritually impure. As a priest, he's not allowed to approach closer than four cubits to a dead man, lest he become defiled. And if he did become defiled, it would be a huge hassle for the priest. Jesus notes that he was going down the road. In other words, he was traveling from Jerusalem, which is at a higher elevation, down to Jericho, which lies lower in the Jordan Valley. The most plausible reason for him to be traveling this way is if he had just finished working in the temple and was returning home. 
And so if this man became ritually impure by touching a dead body, he'd be required to travel back to the temple. And then he would have to undergo a long process of ritual purification. He'd have to spend about a week waiting there and have to sacrifice a red heifer, costing the priest time and money. But perhaps even more importantly, we should note the ethical culture in which this priest lived. This was not a culture which promoted helping out a random stranger. After all, a random stranger could easily be someone the priest would consider a sinner. A rabbinic tradition in the time of Jesus went like this. Give to a devout man. Do not go to the help of a sinner. Do good to a humble man. Give nothing to a godless one. Refuse him bread. Do not give him any. It might make him stronger than you are. Then you would be repaid evil twice over for all the good that you have done him. You see, this was not a culture in which one would take a risk in helping out an anonymous stranger. You helped those you knew, those who deserved it in your own eyes. Jesus continues this parable saying, So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. It's possible that the Levite had even seen the priest ahead of him and noted his actions. But unlike the priest, the Levite is not bound by so many regulations about ritual purity. As a Levite, he only had to be ritually pure during his time when he was serving in the temple. And outside of that time, if he became ritually impure, it wasn't a big deal to become ritually clean again. And somewhat unlike the priest who keeps his distance, this Levite seems to be willing to come slightly closer to the man who's lying there. We're told that he came to the place and saw him. The Levite, however, comes from the same ethical culture as the priest. A culture in which love for one's neighbor is restricted to those who are good members of the same tribe or same religion. So he takes a look. But not seeing any sign that this man belongs to his tribe or religion, he continues on his way. But, Jesus continues... A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Here the the parable goes off the rails, so to speak. What Jesus' audience would have expected would be for a, a regular Jewish man to appear. After all, if you've already seen the priest and then the Levite, the natural expectation is then to see a regular Jewish man. But Jesus throws his audience a curveball. He is going to make the hero of this parable a person everyone in his audience would naturally hate and despise. The conflicts and issues between the Jews and the Samaritans were many and very sad. A rabbinic work written just before the time of Christ stated, 
There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Edomites, and the Philistines, and the stupid people living at Shechem, that is, the Samaritans. One scholar noted that the Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues, and a petition was daily offered up, praying to God that the Samaritans might not be partakers in eternal life. So make no mistake, the hatred between Jews and Samaritans was as strong as any racial or ethnic conflict we might be familiar with today. It's a hatred and conflict we witness back in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, where Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. But the people refused to receive him because he was heading to Jerusalem. And when his disciples see this rejection, what do they offer? They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Note the disciples never offered to do such a thing to a Jewish town. They never offered to call fire down on Nazareth when they rejected Jesus. But to a Samaritan town? The typical Jewish response in that day was, why not? They're just Samaritans. But we read there that Jesus turned and rebuked them. And with this parable as well, we see Jesus once again shattering the old order of things. Now we should know the Samaritan is not technically a, a full Gentile. He is someone bound by the same laws of the Torah as the Jews. The Samaritans did have their own version or understanding of the Torah, which included some changes, mostly focused on describing Mount Zion as Mount Gerizim. But the purity laws were the same. This Samaritan would have to deal with the same issues of becoming unclean upon contact with a dead body. But he doesn't let this stop him. He came to where the man was, like the Levite. But he doesn't leave the man there. Now the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was not Samaritan territory. He could safely assume that this man he was helping was not one of his countrymen. Nevertheless, he decides that he will show love to this stranger. The Samaritan went to where the beaten man lay and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The oil and wine would have served as a kind of first aid remedy. Pouring them on would wash out dirt from the wounds, lessening the chance of infection. But you might also say there's a certain religious significance to this action. Oil and wine, after all, were important parts of the temple worship. They were things associated with the work of priests and Levites. But here, it is the Samaritan who administer these things to someone who is a Jew. The Jewish priest and the Jewish Levite would have poured oil and wine on the altar before God. But this Samaritan pours out these things upon a stranger. 
It's an image which also reflects the actions of God in the Old Testament. For God is often described as binding up the wounds of the people. And here we might say he is reflected in the figure of a Samaritan. Next, the Samaritan sets the injured man on his own animal. And as a result, he would either be forced to share the animal or walk in front like a servant. Either way, he's going to be traveling for some kilometers in a very inconvenient fashion. Eventually, he brings the injured man to an inn and takes care of him. Now, he could have simply dropped the man off at the inn and left him. But he continues to show this stranger a kind of sacrificial love to ensure he survives the night. And the next day, he took out two denarii, or two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And this is another act of generosity. Obviously, the wounded man couldn't pay because he had been robbed. But if he had been abandoned at this point, he would almost certainly be arrested for debts owed to the innkeeper. And so the Samaritan does what he can to ensure that this man receives everything he needs to get back on his feet. Let us keep in mind that our Samaritan would have no hope of being repaid. He will most likely never see this man again. After all, he promises to reimburse the innkeeper the the next time he's back in the area. But by then, the man he helped will almost certainly have departed. So what do we see in the Good Samaritan? Well, what we should see in the first place is the person of Jesus Christ. The Samaritan stops and helps the man after he had been rejected by the priest and Levite. Much like Christ came to minister to the common people who were like sheep without a shepherd because their religious leaders were not looking after them. The Samaritan brings healing to the beaten man, much as Christ came healing the sick and the demon-possessed. And the Samaritan doesn't just help the man, but ensures he will get better even after he departs. Much like Jesus had promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples to ensure that they would continue to receive the the guidance and instruction they needed after his departure into heaven. The Samaritan acted to save a person who had done nothing to deserve his care and safekeeping. Someone who would have hated him in ordinary circumstances. Much as Christ came, extending mercy and grace to us. People who have done nothing to deserve this. People who would hate him if it were not for the work of God in our hearts. Having delivered the parable, Jesus asked the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Note that Jesus has reshaped the lawyer's question. He doesn't tell the lawyer who his neighbor is. Instead, he asks, which of these has been a neighbor? Which of these three has actually done what the law of God requires? Which of these three has actually loved 
his neighbor as himself? The answer, of course, is obvious, and so the lawyer admits, the one who showed him mercy. Perhaps we might note that he couldn't even bear to call him the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. He tells the lawyer to go and to be a neighbor to those around, even if they are outside of his religious or ethnic community. He challenges the lawyer to show love to those that he would naturally consider his enemies. The challenge to love those who hate us serves as a reminder that we cannot hope to do these things perfectly. We cannot expect to be able to love everyone around us through our own strength. We must pray for the Holy Spirit to work within us so that we might overcome our sinful nature, which is inclined to all kinds of hatred. It might embrace the new nature which the Holy Spirit is working in us. The new nature characterized by mercy and love. So let us search our hearts. and Consider whether there are people we would prefer to hate rather than love. Are we willing to make fun of people because they have a darker shade of skin? Do we mock those who wear items of clothing which differ from our own? such as turbans? Do we freely insult and slander those who maybe come from a different end of the political or religious spectrum? Let us realize that our Lord offered himself on the cross for the sake of people who did not deserve his love. And he calls upon us to show love to the people around us, even if we don't think that they deserve it. Even if we have reasons to fear or hate or despise them. Christ told the lawyer he needed to go and act like that good Samaritan. And he says the same thing to us. Only we know that if we are to do so, we must ultimately look to him. The one who is the ultimate good Samaritan to his neighbors. We must trust in his work of renewal within us, and we must follow the example and commands which he has set down for us. Amen.